Yeah, so Jack is speaking on uh, Max Scheler, uh, Critic of Phenomenon. Yeah, um, so, critic, but not necessarily opponent, which is one of the things that we talking about as we go through. So what is this paper going to do today? Who is Max Shaler? Question some of you might be asking. I'm going to talk about what Shaler thinks about perception and their mental life. I'm going to go through the phenomenological reduction. Uh, as we'll see, his analysis of the nature and the scope of the reduction is quite different to that which we find in Husserl. We're going to talk about the aims of phenomenological analysis a little bit. Then we move on to the problem of other minds. Husserl's problem, I've called it. I think other minds are a serious problem for Husserl. I'm going to explain why. Then we'll talk about Shaler's solution. Uh, I think he offers a fairly plausible explanation for how we know other minds. What argument am I trying to make? Fairly modestly, what I want to say is that Shaler's doing something quite interesting. He's making some fairly um, cogent criticisms of Husserl that are worth considering. He's got a fairly productive positive programme, fairly wide-ranging. Gives us access to another way of doing phenomenological analysis, one which is tightly integrated with social sciences especially. And he's worth a read. Okay, Shader the man, there he is, doing his best to sort of smoulder in Humphrey Bogart. Look, there's his dates. He worked with Husserl in Göttingen, so he was right there at the beginning. He was one of the editors of the Arabic of Philosophy and Phenomenologische Forsan, um, which was the journal that published Husserl's Ideas 1, at which point he broke with Husserl. So he was splitting away from him before it was called as well. There he was concerned with ethics, religion, philosophical anthropology. Aside from phenomenology, he also translated Bergson into German and introduced him into the German philosophical scene. So that might give you an idea of his other interests and influence. Okay, so let's jump into life. Shane's analysis of the mental is multi-level, okay? He does not think, like some Husserlians may, that reason is the dominant force in a mental life. Um, it has a specific role and place, but fundamentally life is about impulses and drives. What do we mean by that? Okay, Think about animals. He actually thinks even plants have drives, but we'll leave that for now. Animals develop these instincts, these instinctual sorts of behaviours which are based around the fulfilment of some sort of need. Reproduction, food being the two main ones. You might expand it, I'm not a biologist, okay? Instincts operate more or less on a species level, okay? It's not about the survival of the individual the satisfaction of the individual's drives, but the survival of the species as a whole. So this is a ant colony which has entered into something some ants do. It's a death spiral. Basically ants are blind. They use pheromones to uh, follow other ants in search of food. 
Sometimes some ants get lost, you wander off the path, and other ants start to follow them. The ants still lost, but you can smell all the other ants following them. They end up in this sort of horrific whirl, and eventually they'll die from exhaustion. This shows us how instincts go wrong, but also how they're useful for the species. These poor ants have been misserved by their instincts. The species as a whole, however, is still going on, so the instincts are worth something. Now these sorts of instinctual behaviours can develop in some animals to habitual, learned behaviours and intelligent behaviours, okay? Habits are the sorts of things that animals do in response to environmental stimuli um, formed through repetition, trial and error through encountering the same situation. So, for example, the way a dog can be trained in a Pavlovian way to respond in uh, by, by salviating when it hears the bell, for instance. Okay? Intelligent behaviour, this is I think the controversial one. Um, this is the capacity of some animals to novelly use features in their environment for a purpose or end. Okay, so some animals can come across things in the environment which they transform into tools, for instance, okay? Chimpanzees. There's a tribe of chimpanzees in West Africa which has entered the Stone Age. They use stone tools. They pass that knowledge on culturally to other chimpanzees. So this isn't an instinctual behaviour, it's learnt and passed on. And they use it for things like nuts. Um, these chimpanzees are behaving in an intelligent manner. They are intentionally perceiving objects in the world and they give them a meaning, okay? So this chimp here has seen that stone and thought, great, I've got a nutcracker, smash, okay? What this means is, and what this means from a phenomenological point of view, is that perception is already suffused with meaning and intentions even before the development of reason. In other words, in other words, rational, rational thought is not what gives our perception meaning and intention. Okay? This is something which is already there on an animalistic level before human beings have even come into the equation. So what is reason doing? Shade on spirit, there he is, there's the spirit. It's not that. Spirit is what moves us beyond the realm of life. We're not entrapped in our environment, in other words. Spirit is self-reflective. Okay? So whereas that chimpanzee is always going to be in its immediate surroundings, it's always transforming objects in its environment to suit its needs, we, bearers of spirit, are able to reflect on ourselves and by doing so put ourselves out of our immediate environment. We have what Shader calls world. And this world is where objectivity comes in, because what we do when we abstract away is we remove the meaning from objects in our environment. So rather than just seeing that chair as something that I can sit on, 
I start to think of it as a chair, as an object which exists independently of the meaning I fit on it. So this has some obvious implications for what we do when we do the phenomenological reduction. Okay, into CERN, the FOK brackets all intentions to return to a pure experience. The analysis begins with a formal transcendental subject, its perception, takes us away from the world right at the beginning of our experience. And even the very existence of the world is um, suspended to begin with, right? So we don't care when we start doing Husserlian epicay whether things exist or not. That comes later. Rashid is going to argue that there's no such thing as pure experience because all perception, all perception includes and irreducibly includes intention. We can't abstract away from that and stay within experience. What we do when we use a phenomenological reduction is we actually create objectivity. So the source of pure experience that Husserl wants are actually second order things. That's what happens when we abstract ourselves away from pure experience. There's a concrete individual who's always behind perception. It's the transcendental subject doesn't exist for Shailen, no such thing. Because perception is meaningful and intentional, there's always something real, concrete, that's doing that perceiving. And what we do when we abstract is we alienate ourselves from our environment. Okay? Reality is discovered through the resistance to drives. Um, this is really by the by for the purposes of this talk, but it again shows the differences between Husserl and Shaler. Uh, Shaler thinks that experience of reality is the resistance to drives. I might have a very strong impulse to walk in this direction immediately. Oh no, I've ran into a table, the world has resisted me, there is a real world out there. Okay? So we can illustrate this a bit further by moving on to the problem of other minds. Husserl and the fifth Cartesian meditation, which is what I'm going to be focusing on, uh, spends a long time dealing with the problem of other minds. Why does he do this? Because he's very sensitive to the objection that the phenomenological method is inherently solipsistic. That is, you start from the single subject, transcendental ego, and you potter along, and by the time other people have come into the equation, you've already built up your world. So what he wants to do is to find proof for other minds on the same level of certainty that he's operated to up to this point. The way he does this is by a form of analogy. He calls this a non-inferential analogy. So what this means is rather than analogizing uh, well, from a form of inference from a sort of rational um, level that we do in most analogizing, this is a sort of analogy which is intrinsic to perception. So he thinks that it's on the same level of analogy that we have when we see a sharp object and think, oh, I better not touch that, it's very sharp. Even though we haven't touched it and we don't know it's sharp, we've nonetheless analogizing from our previous experience. 
Now, if here what happens is we are presented with the body of the other, and that indicates to us that the other has an ego. Um, the other's ego is displayed to us through their behavior, okay? And the reason that we can be sure there is another ego behind it is that he thinks we have this pairing. Okay, so we've got the transcendental ego which is paired with a body and we're able to perceive that. One of the ways we can perceive this is through this idea of the community of monads. So if each transcendental ego is a monad. There's some sort of great community uh, in wherever transcendental egos go in which we sort of recognize each other and are able to spot each other when we bump into each other in the real world. Okay, uh, quite a strange idea. Uh, like I say, I do think this is a serious problem for Husserl, one that he grapples with even in the process of writing the fifth Cartesian meditation. Okay, but the basic idea is there he is, you see an old Maxi, and he's going, oh look, there's an ego there. <laughs> and so there was in many ways um, the problem is of course that I'm supposed to constitute the world entirely and that includes the other because the other is part of the world I perceive them in the world this means the other is also constituting me we're both mutually constituted now, this is a sort of an issue if I'm supposed to be the one doing all the constituting. Okay. Now, Rousseau tries to deal with this through the idea of primordial and secondary constitution. Um, primordial being the sphere of ownness, which is essentially my own intentions, a very limited sphere, and then the secondary constitution is the world beyond that. This seems to create a gap between me and the other, okay? Because we're each just pottering around, constituting our sphere of ownness and jointly constituting the world. There nonetheless seems to be a problem in getting the sort of certainty we want, if we want that certainty to be on the same level as everything else is for himself. So it doesn't seem to me that this adequately resolves the problem, at least to the degree of certainty we'd like. Now, Shaver also suggests that this analogical explanation commits a fallacy of four terms, which means that in the conclusion we introduce an element which has not been justified by the preceding argument. Okay, so here's the set of premises which we could reconstruct. I have a transcendental ego, which gives me consciousness. My conscious processes are exhibited in my behaviour. This thing is behaving like I do when I'm consciousness, so it must be another conscious being. The problem is, in this word, another. What we've done so far does not justify that being another consciousness. At most, it justifies this other thing being part of my transcendental ego. That's the thing that we've got. Okay, I have a transcendental ego. Maybe my transcendental ego is part of a great big transcendental ego which is multiply instantiated across various things, but that's not really the direction Husserl wants to be going in either. 
So this problem, okay, this, this other is still mission. Okay, so what does Shader have to say about this? Again, we've got the nature and the scope of phenomenological analysis, which is a state. He says what Husserl does is privileging the self before everything else. In Husserl, we're primarily aware of the self, in my experience. The Shader experience precedes selfhood. And this is why there's a picture of a bat. Yes, it is a Thomas Nagel reference. Okay? We have experience before we have a self, because of this late interaction between the levels of life and spirit. Life is where we get the intention, the meaning. Spirit is the abstraction and the verification. Okay? So what this means is that identification is what is basic to our knowledge about the minds. Now this isn't a perceptual category, it's not only a perceptual category, it's an effective one, okay? It operates at the realm of emotions, specifically fellow feeling, offers a direct insight into the mind of the other. Now this isn't an analogous reproduction of an emotional state in the other, okay? What we do when we have fellow feeling is that we see someone and we feel for them. So, I see my one-year-old very, very upset because he really wants the glass of squash that he's just thrown on the floor. I don't feel very, very upset. Not for that reason, anyway. But I can feel very sorry for him that he is upset. Okay? Now, this perception is possible through the expressions of the other. The emotional state I'm in is displayed through my expression this doesn't just tell us what they're feeling, it also tells us how they feel it. If someone were to walk up and punch me in the face, I would be in a lot of pain. You could see that from my expression. You'd also see how I deal with pain. Maybe I just sit on the floor and start bawling like a baby. Okay? That would tell you something about me as an individual. It would tell you something about my personality. Okay? So here they are again. Poor old Edmund. He's very upset. Poor Edmund. But he's a person with a mind because his sadness is displayed in a certain way and to a certain extent. Okay, so what this means is the problem of other minds is not an abstract issue. It's not about how we perceive other egos in the world. It's highly concrete. It's about our actual relations with other people. The paradigmatic way this is expressed for Shaver is love. Love is a relationship through which we learn about the other person as an individual, also ourselves as an individual. We dive deeply into the other person's personality until we reach this sort of core part of subjective being. And through that, we actually give the other person that core part of subjective being. They come to understand themselves through our love relationship, just as I come to understand myself through the opposite. Okay? Actually, I think this can be generalised. All forms of effective relationship show us the personality of the other. Okay? Um, and the mother-child relationship, and this is the first moment for Shayla where individuality comes. 
basically the infant is not very sophisticated in their perception. When you're born, you've really got a few basic things that you want. You want food, you want warmth. What you ideally want is to crawl back into the womb and go there for a few more years. So you also want to tell everyone how annoyed you are about it, at least in my experience. The child eventually comes to realise that the mother is a person with a character of their own and not just a feature of the environment which happens to be pretty good at satisfying their needs. And that is how we start to realise that other people exist. Okay? And final point. Shayla, we don't need access to every thought to know that someone's consciousness, okay? Someone's conscious. It's good enough to know that they have thoughts. I don't need to know exactly why somebody is in pain, exactly what sort of pain they're feeling to know that they're in pain and to know what that says about them as a person. Just like I don't need to know the exact position and velocity of every cloud in the sky to know that it's overcast. Okay? So in conclusion, if there is a conclusion to be drawn, Shade is doing something pretty interesting, I think. What he's doing is showing us another way to look at phenomenological problems from a perspective which is multifaceted, multi-level, and raises some issues uh, for the Cernian perspective. And finally, he is a critic, not an opponent. He is doing phenomenology, he is intensely concerned with experience. He just thinks we ought to look at it a bit differently. Okay, and that's it.